Father, thank you so much for allowing us to come together this morning in a crazy year. But while the year is crazy, you are constant. And we ask that you would be good to us this morning by opening our eyes to the fullness of Jesus and what he means for our life and eternity. I thank you for each person in this room. And though, Lord, wherever they're at with you, I pray that they would see your greatness, your grace, your glory, your unrivaled glory. And I pray that over everybody that's participating online and maybe those who will participate later, Lord, would you speak to our hearts? I am, Lord, acutely aware of my inability to do anything that changes hearts apart from your spirit working through me in your word. So I pray that with expectation. I pray that, Lord, um, you would not allow me to say anything that you don't want me to say and that you would put the pedal to the metal on everything that I say that is consistent with who you are. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can grab a seat. If you have a Bible, you can open up to John chapter 10. And what I want to do this morning is continue our series on the I Am passages of the Gospel of John. But let me start here. In 1884, a widow named Sarah Winchester, her husband was the late William Winchester of Winchester Rifle Company, after he passed away, she moved in 1884 to San Jose, California, where she bought a farmhouse. And from that day forward until her death, many years later, September 5th, 1922, that old farmhouse was under constant renovation, construction, and expansion. And at the time of her death, September 5th, 1922, that little old farmhouse was now a mansion of 34,000 square feet. Now the story is even more interesting than that. You see, before she had left for San Jose from Boston, she had consulted with a spirit medium. And that spirit medium said that you need to build a house your entire life that would house you, but also the spirits of people who had died at the hands of a Winchester rifle. And then this spiritist said, you need to make sure that this house will trap spirits who have ill intentions for you. Thus, the continuous expansion of this building. 10,000 windows. 40 staircases, most of which led to nowhere. Labyrinths of hallways. 13 bathrooms. 47 fireplaces. But to me, most mind-blowing of all was the fact that this building had 2,000 doors. Now, to put it in proportion, that would mean a house of 2,000 square feet would have 166 doors. I mean, just door, 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 door. Most of these doors, of course, led nowhere. They just opened up to a wall or an empty hallway. But when I first read about that story, and you can visit the Winchester Mansion to this day outside uh, San Jose, when I first heard of that story, I thought, that is a parable of humanity right there, is it not? 
Humanity looking for doors, 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 doors to go through, to be whole, to complete, to be satisfied, to be saved. You got to go through this door. You got to go through this door. Doors, doors, doors. Maybe you, you join a business or an organization and somebody will say, man, if you want a door open to you to rise in this organization, you need to get to know her or him or whatever. And in the area of religion, it is not uncommon to hear people say, it doesn't really matter what door you pass through. doesn't really matter what religion you subscribe to, just as long as you are sincere. Doors, doors, doors. And I would just say that our lives are a lot like that Winchester mansion. All these possible doors to go through. Well, this morning we are turning to one of the marquee passages of the entire Bible, John chapter 10. And in John chapter 10, Jesus Christ presents himself with two metaphors or images. The first being a door and the second one a shepherd. And Jesus is going to teach us that he is the door through which sheep enter to get into the sheepfold, but he's also the good shepherd who knows his sheep, calls them by name, and lays down his life willfully for them before he takes it back up again. Now, we're going to get to the good shepherd part next week. This morning, I want us to dial, on, dial in on this metaphor. Jesus said, I am the door. And if you're wondering what the big idea of the message is, it would be this. When he says, I am the door, he's basically saying, I am the way into God's kingdom. I am the door. And what we're going to do is we're going to do this. We're going to take a quick look at the context and the, and, and the greater context of what it means to a sheepfold and pens and all that, because without understanding that, this passage can be confusing. Then second of all, we are going to look at the radical exclusivity of Christ's claim to be not a door, but the door. But then we're going to see paradoxically that this radically exclusive claim is actually radically inclusive. All humanity is invited to come through that little door. And then finally, we'll return to the text with some closing thoughts. So that's kind of where we're going to go this morning. First of all, a quick look at the text in context. As Obi read it, verses 1 through 5 sort of set up the entire chapter. Then verse 6, John tells us what we could probably already tell, that Jesus is speaking metaphorically. He says here, the figure of speech Jesus used with them, this figure of speech. Then you move on and you get to verses 7 and 9 where Jesus explicitly says, I am the door, right? And then verses 11 and following, he makes it explicit when he says, I am the good shepherd. Now, if you take any time in this passage, as simplistic as it seems, it's actually a bit confusing. And the reason I say this, maybe you caught it when it was read in your hearing, in verse 3, Jesus makes it clear that he's not the gatekeeper, that he actually goes through the gatekeeper to get in. The old version says porter. If you have the King James, it says porter. Sometimes it says gatekeeper, doorkeeper. He makes it clear that he's not the doorkeeper, but he has to pass through the doorkeeper to get in. And yet, as we're going to see this morning in verses 7 and 9, he says, I actually am the gatekeeper. I actually am the gate. I actually am the door. I am the door. So, so how do you reconcile that? Because it's a bit confusing. Well, clarity comes to the confusion, and this will be helpful for us, 
when you understand the context. Context, realtors say location, location, location. Biblical expositors say context, context, context. There are two kinds of sheepfolds or pens that would hold a flock of sheep or flocks of sheep back in biblical times. The first kind of sheepfold was that which would be located inside of a village complex or even a larger town. It was a large sheepfold, very big, fixed walls, very substantive, and actually had a swinging gate. They would actually hire um, a porter or a gatekeeper to make sure that no one would come in and take the sheep through the swinging gate at night. And it was a sheepfold that was for all the families of that little village or bigger town. Each of them would have, if they had money, had their own flock of sheep. They had their own shepherd. And when the shepherds came in from the fields, they would herd the sheep into the larger sheepfold. And in the morning, when they wanted to take them back out the pasture, they would call them by name. We're going to get to that next week. That's the primary sheepfold being referenced in John chapter 10. A structural one, a fixed one inside city limits or town limits. But then there's a second kind of sheepfold. And this is the sheepfold we're going to look at today. Referenced in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. This was a sheepfold or a pen for when an individual shepherd had his flock way out in the field or country looking for uh, fresh vegetation, right, so the sheep could eat. And sometimes that would be a couple days' journey. He would have to keep the flock away from the village, and he would construct just a real quick sheepfold, basically consisting of a circle or oval of rock stacked maybe thigh high or waist high. He would throw some thorns or briars on it, And he would herd his little flock of sheep into that at night where they would be safe. There was no door for it. He would lay in the threshold of the door to keep the sheep in at night and the wolves out at night. Does that make sense? Matter of fact, G. Campbell Morgan, he was a a pastor in London, then L.A., then London from the 1900s to the 1950s. He was visiting Palestine, the old Bible lands, and uh, he was visiting with a shepherd. And a shepherd showed him that kind of sheepfold out in the field that I'm describing. And he said, it, it, it was kind of underwhelming, frankly, so Campbell Morgan said, the sheep stay in there? And the shepherd said, oh, yeah, when they come inside here, they're, they're, they're very safe. They can't get out, and, and wolves can't get in. And Morgan said, but there is no door. And the shepherd said, I am the door. And that is the kind of pen that's being referenced here. So I don't mean to all be all, you know, uh, Technical, but does that help? Do you guys understand the difference between the two sheepfolds? Because I think that's key to really diving into each of these two metaphors. So then let's move on to the exclusivity of Jesus' claim to be the door or the gate to the sheepfold. There are so many doors today, right? Doors, doors, doors. And every one of these doors, with the exception of one, is like the doors in the Winchester Mansion. They lead to nowhere. Matter of fact, no, no, let me correct myself. They don't lead nowhere, they lead somewhere. And you know where that somewhere is? Eternal destruction away from the presence of God. Now there's two very insightful words in verse 8 of our text. I'd like you to look at verse 8. Jesus says, 
all who came before me are thieves and robbers. He is describing two things at the same time. He's describing false ways into sheepfolds that thieves and robbers will, will get into the sheepfold, right? And we'll see next week, he's also at the same time referring to false shepherds. But the word thieves and robbers, it's very illuminating. Thieves is the word kleptus. Does that remind you of an English word that we have? Kleptomaniac. Exactly. A kleptomaniac is one who steals by deception, right? A shoplifter. Uh, Satan is a shoplifter. Genesis 3.1. Did God really say? You know, he's trying to use deception. The other word robber refers to someone who doesn't necessarily steal as much by deception as they do by force. We're talking armed robbery, that kind of thing. And, and, and the point I'm trying to make by calling our attention to these two words is that today there are many doors of deception and force that want to keep lost people, because we're all born lost, in their lost estate so that verse 10, they can be brought to everlasting destruction. Now, let me, let me talk about a few of these doors that people that are out there in the Winchester mansion of life, if you will. First of all, there is the door of religion. In other words, do this, and maybe God will ma accept you into his kingdom at the end of the age or whatever, right? The door of religion. See, and this is what the Pharisees were about. They had taken the glorious truth of Old Testament Judaism, which prophesied of a Messiah who would save by mercy and grace, and they had twisted and convoluted Judaism into a system of extra-biblical rules and etc. that they told people, if you follow these rules, you might be okay with God, or at least us. And that's why if you go back to John chapter 9, the chapter previous, you have this guy that's born blind. You remember what happens to that guy? What, does he, what happens to him? We got a silent crowd in here this morning, right? What does he do, Dave? Aren't you glad you're sitting up here alone, right? <laughs> Just me and you right here. He heals him of his blindness, right? And what do the Pharisees do? Woo! Thank you, Lord. We want to know who this Jesus is for healing him. No, the Pharisees, they quibble. They're like, well, maybe he was healed from his blindness, but... Why was he blind? Was he blind because he was a sinner? Or was he blind because his parents were a sinner? And they, they, they cannot celebrate that this guy has received a salvation of sorts. Instead, they literally throw that guy out of the congregation when he testifies about Jesus. Works religion offers a false door. And if you go through that door, you will remain lost. In fact, if you come out of a system like that and trust Christ, what happens to you is often is what happens to that blind guy. You're banished. You're kicked off. You're kicked like you're, you're not cool with us because you don't believe in our system anymore. You're saying it's just Jesus. They hated the message of grace. And I just want to say that modern proponents of works religion which is every religion, by the way, outside of Christianity, they may seem a little bit kinder than the Pharisees in John chapter 9, but the door they're swinging open that they're telling you to walk through has a shaft at the end of it that leads to destruction. 
There is the door of religion. There's tons of them. Then there is the door of universalism. Anybody know what universalism is? What is that? Yeah, all, all, all roads lead to Rome, or all roads lead home, right? Universalism says it really doesn't matter what you believe. Just be sincere, and, and, and you'll get home. Everyone is going to heaven. And what universalistic teachers do is they take a beautiful attribute of God, which is his love, and they use it to blot out all his other attributes, justice, holiness, sovereignty, etc., it's like, it's like Rob Bell several years ago said, you know, in the way he even puts it, what kind of God sends people to hell? And then he takes a few verses out of context and does so with a high-end orthodontist improved smile and some soft speech and some wittiness, and people say, whoa, I did, this is great stuff. No. It's a lie. It's, it, it's deception. He's, he's trying to be a kleptomaniac with people's souls. There's doors of religion, there's doors of works, and then there's, and then there's some other doors um, that maybe aren't so much doors of deceit, but actually doors of force, of violence. You have, for instance, the door of atheism. Atheism says there is no God. Agnosticism, which is a cousin to atheism, says there might be a God, but there's not enough evidence to prove it either way, so don't even bother with it. And then there's the door of humanism. Humanism says that men and women, humanity, humankind, decides what's right and wrong. We are the, we are the end of all things. Now you say, well, how, how do you, why do you say force? How is this a thing of force that's being forced on people? Well, I would say this. That these kinds of things, atheism, agnosticism, Humanism is being foisted upon people in our educational system, specifically with higher education, where people plow young, impressionable minds with these truths and hope to make them captive and to go through those false doors. And and maybe the best illustration of this is, this is an anecdote, but you probably read it, that in the last few years, public libraries have sometimes let cross-dressing people come in to read stories to the kids, while at the same time banning Christians coming in to use rooms in public libraries to tell people the story of the cross. Is that not perhaps a little bit indicative that something is amiss? There's doors, doors, doors. Then we could go on. There's the door of pleasure. Like you, you will be fulfilled if you just do, you just do whatever your heart wants to do, right? There's the doors of success. We could go on and on and on. Doors and doors and doors. And all of them, Jesus is teaching us, lead to destruction. Jesus comes along and he says, I am the door. Now notice, he doesn't say I am a door. Like if you're looking for a door, I might be a good one. There's other ones too. He says, no, I am the door. He he doesn't pull... (laughs) And I, I usually don't mention names of sermons, but this is just one of those kinds of sermons, honestly. Um, and you see Paul doing this sometimes with Hymenius and Alexander, right? Um, you have a guy named Joel Osteen, and, and he's on Larry King Live, and Larry, you know, asks him one of those hard questions like, now, are you one of those Christians that really believes that Jesus is the only way? Now, what's the answer there? 
I didn't make it up. Jesus sort of said it, right? Instead he says, well, for me he is, but, but, but I wouldn't want to judge anybody else. Just for me he is. This ain't about you. It's about him. Jesus says, I am exclusively the way. Now let's take a couple objections to that because if any of us, if you share your faith at all, you're going to come up with objections and they're fair objections. You know, people don't know the Lord are going to raise good questions and we ought to be able to answer them. But one of the objections we'll often hear is, is, is this. It is so unfair that unless you trust Jesus, you're separated from God forever. It's so unfair. Have anybody ever had that? Like, that's just unfair. Now, there's a lot of really clever ways you can answer that. And in, in other times I've shared some ways. But this, this is kind of a more direct approach. But as I was thinking about it and just thinking about some witnessing opportunities I've had, I wonder if sometimes we're just too clever. And maybe we just ought to graciously speak some truth. Just graciously speak some truth, especially if you have some relational currency with that person. And, may, and maybe we could say this, you know, hey, listen, my friend, I, I know this is going to seem kind of maybe even a little offensive, but I wonder if you ought to get off your throne for a second and get on your face before the one for whom this big globe we live on splashed with over 7 billion people, that's his footstool. The Bible says about God, heaven is my throne. Jesus said this, earth is my footstool. And as you're getting down, and I struggle to do that too, but as you're getting down, maybe, maybe look in the mirror and square up with your own sin your own mistakes through your life, your own rebellion, your own lack of care and compassion, and maybe you'll start to be amazed that God doesn't send you away from his presence immediately for the last sin that you committed. Forget the hundreds of thousands you committed before that one. Oh, and by the way, each and one of those sins you committed, you commit with breath that he has graciously given you to give you life. And when you, maybe, the point is, maybe... When someone starts doing this, we'll say, forget fairness. I don't want what's fair. I need something besides fairness because if I get what's fair, it ain't going to be good. And then you're able to say, hey, I also want to tell you about the most unfair act that ever took place. That God in crazy, lavish, extravagant love for you made him who knew no sin to be sin for you that you might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, the ultimate unfair act is the sinless son of God taking our stuff on him on the cross. And so that we might taste and experience saving mercy. So maybe that's just one way, one time you could answer that objection. Or here's another objection. You Christians are so judgmental for saying Jesus is the only door. How would you answer that? Even going back to that Larry King interview, how would you answer that? I would say, if I was making this up, I would be extremely judgmental for saying that. I'm simply quoting the words of the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. Let me close this exclusive, exclusivity part with this. And, and, and maybe you've never thought about it this way. And, and maybe this will be very helpful in confidence building for you as you share the gospel. The exclusivity of Christ is actually a deeply compassionate truth because it warns people against taking doors that lead to destruction, shafts that lead and 
plunge to hell. Imagine, imagine with me a massive canyon in front of you. Massive canyon. I mean, big, deep. You're going to die six times over if you fall off the lip of that canyon. And imagine on the other side of that canyon is the most beautiful place one has ever seen. A place full of shalom, saturated with peace and unity and love. And is ruled by a loving and gracious king. And you're on the other side of, the, of, this, of this massive um, canyon. And there's a big wall all across the side. As high as you can see, as far left and as far right. And it's just peppered with thousands and thousands of doors all the way across. And only one of those doors has a bridge or a catwalk that will safely get you into this beautiful city. Now let me ask you this. Would it be compassionate to say, it doesn't really matter which of these doors you take? Would that be compassionate? Would it be unkind, insensitive, uh, mean-spirited, harsh to say, listen, man, the only door you can take to get across is that door right there? Would it, would it occur to you that it would be that way? No, of course not, right? And I'm just saying, all the soft-spoken speech, all the kind countenances, all the winsomeness cannot veil the selfishness and the hate it takes not to be clear on this. Narrowness is kindness. Because it gives people clarity in how they can be right with the God who created them for his glory. But there's also inclusivity to this. You might say, boy, when I hear exclusivity, when we hear something's exclusive, we, we typically think, oh, to get into that exclusive club, you've got to do something to qualify yourself, right? Like you've got to have a certain economic level. Or you got to have a certain educational clout. You know, you want to join some highfalutin country club where they hold a PGA tournament, you, you probably got to give them your bank statement, right? So you can show that you can pay the monthly fees. Or if you want to become some part of so, some think tank, you got to have certain PhDs. You, if you want to become part of the VFW, you have, have been in a war hostile fire zone. You want to be an American Legion, you have to be a veteran. If you want to, you know, be any, any group has qualifiers that you bring to get into that group, right? Whether it's your ethnicity or gender, all across the board. But when we talk about the exclusivity of Christ, we don't mean that. We don't mean that we qualify ourselves. We actually mean, no, he qualifies us. He qualifies us because getting into his family across that cavern, into his kingdom, isn't predicated on what we must do, but what he has done. So yes, salvation is very narrow in its location. There's one door. Christ and Christ alone. Not Christ plus baptism, not Christ plus your good intentions, but Jesus Christ alone. 100%, 200 proof grace. Narrow in its location, but baby, radically inclusive in its invitation. There is nobody that is not invited to walk through that door. You, there are no qualifiers. It, do, it does not matter what your economic level is. 
It doesn't matter where you live or who you voted for or what your geog- where you live geographically or what team you root for or your family circumstances or even your sin background. And I say that on the basis of 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 10. We're coming back to 1 Corinthians in a few months. But Paul says, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor drunkards, and it goes on and on and on, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Then he goes on to say, but such were some of you. You've been washed, you've been justified, you've been saved. In other words, people could come from all kinds of sin backgrounds and be saved. Listen, Jesus Christ's invitation to walk through his narrow door is as wide as the world. Whosoever will. And the only conditions of going through that door are what? The only conditions are we actually go, you come, and you come in repentance, right? You come owning your stuff. You come owning and say, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I know you're holy. I know you must deal with my sin, but thank you that you dealt with it on your son in my behalf, right? Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, dropping your eyes down at verse 10, these false shepherds and false doors, um, unlike them, Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly or more abundantly. Before you can know abundant life, you got to know life. It, it's, it's the verse 9 expression, it is being saved. You must come. You have to come to the Lord. You must come. You must go through the door. He says you must enter through the door. You, you got to enter. Hmm. How many people know about Jesus but have actually never entered? Think about that. Think about that. Think about that. How many people have never really entered through the door who would call themselves Christians? And I believe we're living in a time when there's a great winnowing among those who have head knowledge and those who actually have heart knowledge and have passed through the door. You ever take a test that you did not prepare for and bombed it? I have. When I went off my freshman year of college down in Virginia, I was just into having a good time and playing baseball on the, in the fall schedule. And uh, it worked out. My first math test, I can't remember what it was, algebra or calculus or something. I absolutely nailed that test because I had it that same class in high school. And I signed up just for that reason, frankly, okay? Um, so I thought, man, I got it made. I don't even need to go to any more classes. So between test one and test two, I didn't go to class. Thinking, I showed up without studying, nailed it, same thing. I bombed that test. I did not prepare. It was all new stuff, and I, I think I got a D if that. And I spent the rest of the semester trying to catch up. You got to prepare. You ever, go, you ever go on a trip that you did not really prepare for? When I was courting Susan, I, I planned a ski trip um, in North Carolina, which I should have said, that's problematic, ski trip in North Carolina, but there was a few places. My only, the only plan that I did was asking her. I didn't really do any other planning, and it was a bu- not a good trip, okay, because no, no, nothing worked out as far as trying to ski and all this and that. I was not prepared. Somebody said, the reason you must prepare to meet God 
is because you must meet God. There's no getting around that. And it's not going to be like Price, of right, Price is Right with Bob Barker. Us older people remember that, that game show where, hey, the best door is the trip to Maui. And if you, if you don't choose that door, maybe you get like a bedroom suite. Oh, I don't need that. Well, I can at least resell it and make some money off that. Or I can get, you know, 10 months of free groceries at, at Kroger's or A&P. No, 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 no. There's one door. All the other doors lead to destruction. I just want to ask you, have you come through that door? It's radically exclusive. It's Christ alone to get into the way to God. But it's radically inclusive, whosoever will. Now, just a few closing looks, a, a, a final look at our text. The primary application of this metaphor is one of salvation. But it's also laden and pregnant with images of safety and satisfaction. And I want to end here. I just read the latter part of verse 10. If anyone enters by me, he will, I'm sorry, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have what? Life and have it how? More abundantly. The word abundantly there, sometimes translated more abundantly, is actually a mathematical term. And the idea is surplus life. Overflowing life. Jesus said that as you go through that door, you not only have salvation, you've got surplus life. And I think, as I say, he's referencing a degree of safety and a degree of satisfaction. Now, he doesn't mean by that, by, by the way, a life free of sorrow and sickness. He said that in this world you will have much affliction. Apostolic preaching was like this, Acts chapter 14, verse 22, where they said, through much affliction you must enter into the kingdom. So this is not a, a, a waiver against everything that will come against you and be hard in your life. So what do we mean then? Well, first of all, there's the safety of eternal security. Romans 8 says, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, and this final junk drawer expression, just to make sure we hit everything, nor anything else in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are in Christ, you are in Christ. If you have truly repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you can never be snatched out of Jesus' hands. He talks about that later in this chapter. So there is eternal security, but now stay with me. I think there's also a measure of temporal safety here on earth, even with all the craziness happening around us. When you keep going through the door of Jesus, in and out to pasture, abiding in him, getting in his word, growing in wisdom and stature like he did, learning the mind of God, learning the way to walk, all of that, you will still steer clear of unnecessary suffering. Keyword, unnecessary. How many people here have suffered because of their own personal sin? Raise your hand. We all have. We've, we've suffered because of our stupidity. We've suffered, suffered because of our sin. Stuff that probably if we were walking closer with God and obeying what we know to be true in the Word, and going through that door, right, again and again and again, we would not have experienced that. I, frankly, I feel like 
part of my adulthood is overcoming the scars of my sins and doing the wrong things in my youth and even, even in later years. A lot of self-inflicted injury. Anybody who ever pries into their heart and tries to unpack the stuff of their life that's not pleasing to God inevitably will trace that, a lot of that stuff, to issues in their life when they were not following God. And yeah, God is sovereign, okay? You know we're big here on the sovereignty of God. But you can't use the sovereignty of God as a trump card to say, well, I guess it just had to happen. Because there are certain things that did not have to happen if we obeyed God, if we walked with him. There is suffering that we avoid on the positive side if we walk with the Lord. I mean, just go to the book of Proverbs. I'm reading through Proverbs right in the last several months. Proverbs says really basic stuff like, you know what, don't run your mouth, because if you don't, you might run into a fist. It, it, it kind of says that. It says, stop hanging out with the wrong crowd. Yeah, you got a sin nature, but certain crowd only going to bring that out. Stop, uh, don't, don't, don't look at the strange woman, or by, by extension, the strange man. Um, Proverbs warns us that if you don't work hard, and you act like a sluggard, you ain't going to do so well. You're going to suffer in life. And it goes on and on, all these, these things that if I'm obeying what God says on how to do life here, and that's frankly why relationships suffer and marriages suffer and churches suffer and people suffer because they are not experiencing the safety they can have by walking with the Lord. And we all know by experience we put ourselves outside of that by our sin sometimes. And then I just want to end with this, the satisfaction. You will go in and out. He says the sheep will go in and out and find pasture. Now, I know chomping on a bunch of green grass is not a satisfying image to you, right? Remember, he's talking about sheep, and we're sheep. And they would go out of that gate in the safe daylight hours to some green pasture to find satisfaction. And to me, the application is obvious here. That as, as I'm going in and out the door, just being close to Jesus, walking in his ways, I'm going to experience more satisfaction here on life, here, here on earth, in this physical life, in anticipation of the supreme satisfaction I'm going to experience at the beatific vision when I see him face to face. Years ago in America, there was a place called Costco, and they had food sample carts out. I, know it's, it's, I don't know if that's ever going to come back, right? And sometimes you got a bad food sample cart. You want to hurt the feelings of the poor guy working it, so you kind of throw it in the trash can on the side. Like, I don't want to eat that. But sometimes you taste something that's, like, really good. And it makes you want to go back and actually buy that item, right? And I believe that as we go in and out the door and go to the green pastures, as we obey God, He's going to give us some more and more sample carts of the good stuff that's to come that's already ours in Jesus Christ. Now, using the door metaphor in a little different way, Jesus said this. This, word, this verse is often used as a salvation verse. It's really not. Revelation 3.20. Anybody know that verse? Anybody know it? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will eat with him. He, he's promising that as we go in and out, we're going to fellowship with him and experience more of him. So I was talking pre 
predominantly about salvation today. But I'm closing right now. But is God knocking on your heart? Do you need to start going in and out and getting back into the Word and fellowshipping with Him? And, and maybe it just starts, you're going to own where you're not walking with Him right now. And the only reason that, I mean, one of the reasons he wants to convict you of that is so you don't experience unnecessary suffering. Because life's going to throw enough suffering at you anyway, right? In a fallen world. So why invite more, right? Huh? So the Holy Spirit maybe is knocking on the door of your heart to open that door to repentance and renewed fellowship to Jesus Psalm 118, verse 20, this is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. And this is the word of God. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. And I pray, Lord, that um, we would see not just on the level of salvation, but on the level of wise living and satisfaction, the thing that we're running after through the, all the other doors for that is found by going in and out the door of Jesus, constant fellowship. So, Lord, would you, would you not let us walk out of here, okay, sermon, song, done. But really, would your spirit really just move freely? Would it be a fire right now in hearts, a wind blowing in our minds? Um, so, Lord, anything that's locked that door, um, and cause us not to come to you would be dealt with. I stand at the door and knock. You say, Jesus, if any man open that door, I will come into him and he into me and we will eat together. Maybe there will be some eating together with you, Jesus, this week because of this message. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.